everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. Um, today we'll be discussing drainage irrigation and fribulinic therapy drift for post-hemorrhagic ventricular dilatation, 10-year follow-up of a randomized control trial and I have with me uh, two of the authors uh, and I'll let them uh, introduce themselves. Uh, Karen, we'll go with you first. Thank you for inviting us, Jonathan. So um, my name's uh, Karen Loit. Um, I'm a consultant neonatologist and a reader in neonatal medicine at the University of Bristol. Hi, yeah, and I'm David Ott, um, and I am a senior lecturer in population health and clinical neonatologist in uh, Cardiff. Thank you both uh, very much for taking the time to discuss this paper, which is open access in the current print edition of the journal. Um, I think we'll just get stuck in. Um, David, this is... Um, a 10-year follow-up, so a large study was done 10 years ago. Could you just give us a little bit of background about what that study was, where it sits within the context of, of this particular field of, of neonatology, um, and just give the, uh, our listeners a little bit of background of how we got to this place? Absolutely. So, I mean, this was born out of, uh, you know, the, the futility that in the, in the late 1990s, there really still was no treatment for these children with PHVD. And so around the turn, uh, around the millennium, this drift treatment was sort of developed in, uh, in Bristol. Um, and it was then later on that this became a randomised controlled trial where internationally between Scotland, England, uh, Poland and, and Norway, a number of children were then recruited and then uh, randomised to either getting this drift treatment, which was uh, an irrigation process. Uh, involving um, catheters in the lateral ventricles and then a slow 72-hour period of irrigation with TPA and an artificial CSF solution to try and just remove um, a lot of what were felt to be um, damaging products secondary to that, that initial bleed. That initial um, trial didn't show any difference in the short-term primary outcome, which was PHVD or, or specifically shunt dependency. Um, but it was start, stopped early because it looked very unlikely to achieve that primary outcome. And so it didn't achieve its power for the longer term outcomes um, as a consequence of that. And that was a, you know, a, a very difficult decision to make at the time and made based on the fact that this is a relatively complex process to deliver and it does involve uh, risks to the baby. And when it looked like the primary outcome wasn't going to be achieved, or at least the short term one, it was perfectly reasonable at that point at least to stop it. Um, the differences are that at the two-year follow-up, which was the cognitive and developmental outcome, there looked like there was a, a, quite a substantial difference in, in cognitive ability between those babies that received the drift treatment and the control group. Um, now, these were babies with quite significant PHVD. They had um, already got ventricular dilatation. Uh, they had to have ventricular dilatation over the 97 plus 4 uh, centile. Um, and they were very small and, uh, and, and had to be performed within 28 days of, of life. So outcomes were, were poor, but they were much better in the, in the drift group. Um, and that was in contrast to that shunt dependency, which didn't seem to have any effect at all. Uh, this was then an attempt at the 10-year point just to check that, that that cognitive improvement that was seen in two years um, was still there. Uh, and, and that's what really the paper finds. Okay, that's that's very succinct um, sort, of, sort of background. Um, Karen, uh, to you, um, could you just describe to us 
to what you did. I mean, I suspect following up patients 10 years after an initial trial was no mean feat. Could you just talk us through your methods and perhaps some of the, some of the difficulties that you, you faced and some of the successes then uh, of this particular uh, study methodology? Yes, so, so to do a 10-year uh, follow-up of a trial conducted across you know, four countries uh, was quite a formidable task. Um, we fortunately got funding from the NIHR and HTA to do this. And the other fortunate aspect is that this trial, um, I think, was so well run by uh, you know, the chief investigator of the original trial, Andy Whitelaw, that there, a lot of contact was actually still held with those families. Um, and I think even the families in the control arm were um, you know, actually quite loyal to this trial. So, and thanks to the NHS number, of course, in England and Scotland, we were able to, to trace, um, well, certainly all the UK children were traced very easily. Um, the, the children in Poland, it was harder because there is no uh, national health service number in Poland, so there we struggled a bit more. Um, but basically, we managed to get um, to trace 86% of, uh, of all the children. Actually, we traced all of them, uh, but 86% of them uh, agreed to, to come back for follow-up in Bristol. Um, and of course, some children had also moved to France and Australia and other places. So um, because this was a small trial, we knew that every participant was precious and we had to get hold of um, as many of the children and the families as we could. Now, when you follow up children at 10 years, you know, I mean, when, you, when, we, when we do trials in, in, in newborn babies, it's, it's all about the parents' consent uh, and the parents, um, you know, wanting to be part of the trial. But when you get to 10 years, of course, the children also have their views on this. So um, what we did was we actually did a small pilot in Bristol where we, we had uh, three children from the original safety study uh, come out, come and try out what we thought would be reasonable follow-up and reasonable assessments for children at 10 years, considering that many of these children, um, you know, did have disabilities. And so we brought them to Bristol and, and did the, uh, the pilot, which, which was basically doing the cognitive, uh, the cognitive function we knew would be very important. Um, so doing the British ability scales, uh, and then doing uh, movement assessments, so cerebral palsy classification and movement um, ABC. Also visual assessment uh, and an MRI scan. And we, we managed to work out that that suite of investigations, and we also asked them to complete a, a strengths and difficulties questionnaire for, for behaviour. And we worked out that in a, in, a, in a day you could do this with lots of breaks and lunch in between. Uh, and everybody seemed to be, com you know, comfortable with that. So we 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 piloted it, and it was it was well received. And of course, the, the children were also also signed um, that they, uh, in the same form, that they were happy to take part. So we got all the children back to to Bristol, and then also the Polish children were actually examined in Poland um, by by a psychologist who was originally involved in the the two year follow up as well, um, and. What we found was that the, uh, the cognitive um, ability was an interesting finding. We, you know, when you assess children with a wide um, a vari variance in cognitive ability, which is what you see with this condition, PHVD, um, you, you can't actually, there is no cognitive assessment that covers the whole um, scope. 
So the British ability scales goes from three years upwards, three-year three ability upwards. And of course, if you have a child with severe CP with a cognitive ability at 10 years below the three-year level, you actually find that, you know, you just say that child is unclassifiable. So what we did was to do a composite um, outcome uh, uh, measure, which where we did the Bailey scales in children with an ability below three years. And that meant we could do uh, put together what we call a cognitive quotient, uh, which worked really well. So that meant every child had a score and it's a, a continuous variable. So what we found was, and the other thing we have to say is that but David didn't mention is the original DRIFT trial, the recruitment uh, into the two arms was imbalanced. So the DRIFT arm uh, had higher risk babies, so uh, substantially um, lower birth weight than the control arm and more males and more grade four um, hemorrhages, so more, more infarctions. Uh, so we, a priori, we specified for the 10 year follow-up that we would adjust uh, for those three uh, variables. So we found at 10 that the cognitive outcome uh, was uh, better in the drift arm. So it was, uh, there was a 16 point difference between uh, control and drift in favor of drift. And that's in the unadjusted um, uh, 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 assessment. And then the adjusted um, one, it was 23 points difference. So put that into perspective, 23 points on a cognitive quotient uh, equates to two and a half year advantage in the drift children at the age of 10 years. So quite a big, quite a big treatment effect. Um, on the, uh, another form of looking at the primary outcome, we looked at in a similar way that we did at two years. So looking at the children who survived without severe cognitive disability, uh, the drift arm were almost twice as likely to survive without severe cognitive disability. So that's 60% versus 35% with the number needed to treat uh, in favor of drift of three. So for every three children treated with drift, um, one child uh, survived or ha ha had no severe cognitive disability. We also did uh, ask the children, uh, the schools and the, and the teachers to give us um, uh, the, 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 the children's uh, school outcomes. Uh, and what we found was that the drift on uh, children were more likely to attend mainstream school. And uh, that was on the cusp of being statistically significant. So 44% uh, of children in the drift arm were in, in mainstream school and 29% of the control arm. And of course, this is quite important going forward because if, if a child's able to attend mainstream school, they're much more likely um, to lead independent lives going forwards. On the secondary outcome, so all the other assessments we did, there, there was no, no major differences. So it was mainly uh, the cognitive finding that was interesting. Yeah, and, and quite dramatic differences. I mean, considering, uh, if I understand correctly, the DRIFT trial was, was I think as David said, was, was stopped before its, its primary outcome. I mean, those, those um, differences, I mean, two and a half years is quite a staggering difference and probably unexpected when the initial trial was ceased, would that be fair to say? Yes, I think so. Um, and, you know, what we can see is over time that, you know, to, to test children at two years is one thing. Uh, it's, it's difficult to assess cognitive function at two years. 
Um, and I think that the finding of 10 years was, uh, you know, it, it, it was, as you say, staggering. You know, the statistical analysis was all done by the um, Bristol Randomised Control Trials Unit, so we didn't do the analysis ourselves. Um, and, you know, when it came back with these two codes that none of us could remember what they were, it was, it was astounding to see the difference. So a big treatment effect, but a small trial. So it means, you know, the, obviously the confidence intervals are very wide. I think it demonstrates this, um, you know, this hypothesis that if you, if you wash out the ventricles and clear them of the breakdown products of hemoglobin, um, that you probably it does something, um, you know, to the surrounding white matter, you know, getting rid of all the um, cytokines, etc. And I suppose that with such a big difference, and I suppose this question would be to, to both of you, um, as time has gone on and the difference has been noted to be all, almost greater and the cognitive difference has been greater at, at 10 years. Um, I suppose five years ago, I can remember people talking about this being implemented on a, on a wider scale. You commented yourself, Karen, that this was a, a small trial. Um, what's the next step for this? procedure rather than the study are there plans for wider implementation are there plans for uh, another bigger study or a, a implementation and study as you go what, what are the next steps well i think it's important to say that um david can add to this but uh, to say that it's already um drift continued in norway so after the two-year outcomes in norway they just decided to carry on and use it as um as an, you know, an intervention available to their health service. So they have 10 years experience of, they've continued to do uh, drift. And the Polish units, we presented this, this data at um, the International uh, Pediatric Neurosurgical Association in France in, in February. And the Polish neurosurgeons are going to recommence doing uh, drift as well. And then David can tell us that in Southmead pre-COVID, they, um, they'd already started up drift again. So yes, there are, as Ken's pointed out, there's a number of units around the world that are interested in delivering this in one form or another. And of course, it, it, it does necessarily get modified a little bit by newer technologies that have become available. Um, certainly, there is uh, an aim to start this up again in Bristol. Um, that uh, obviously was waiting for the paper to be published and peer-reviewed. Uh, and then we've had our coronavirus pandemic, which has clearly put uh, some uh, breaks on that whole process. But as I understand it, that's still the aspiration at North Bristol to start um, delivering this, at least in some limited form. Whether and what um, our neonatal community needs to move forward is, is, a, is, a, is a more difficult question, perhaps. Um, there was some attempts to get a bigger trial done before this, um, and that wasn't unable to get any more funding. So. Um, whether we go to get more data from that or from other more contemporary methodologies such as uh, you know implementation of, of, in a wedge approach or something like that, that that's up to debate now. I think as a community we need to have a little think about what more evidence we need both for this and for the other treatments that are, are starting to show promise and how we're going to fit them into our, our clinical care. And you mentioned other treatments um, and if you, if you don't mind me just asking you about a parallel study that was published just at the start of this month, the, the ELVIS trial. And um, Karen, you mentioned uh, pathophysiology of why this, with why the drift technique may have worked. Uh, I'm sure you're both aware of, of the ELVIS study. Uh, just to, for everybody to to be able to link this, it was published in the Journal of Pediatrics. Um, 
uh, it was accepted for publication on the 6th of August and I think published just soon after that uh, and we can link it into our podcast. Um, uh, this was a study of, of, of lumbar puncture um, at, at the 97th and, and, and 4th. Um, do either of you have got comments? The, the type of study is slightly different, the outcome measure is slightly different, but it's an intervention in this sort of area. Do, uh, perhaps, David, do you have a, a comment on, on how this study compares to the, the, the drift study and, and why the two are sort of slightly different in terms of their of their methodology, pathophysiology and outcome? That's probably a bigger question than I intended, but please please feel free to unpack it as you will. <laughs> well, I mean, no, 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 you're right. And we, we do, you know, it is difficult to put together all this existing evidence base into what we're going to do uh, uh, with these infants. Uh, we, you know, we've recently published... Uh, a network meta-analysis trying to look at everything that's been tried in this baby and that was being published in frontiers and the, the striking finding there is that actually for something which is a relatively common condition and, and is a big contributor to childhood disability um, we've really only randomized 700 babies over the last 40 years um, the elvis trial um, was developed um, alongside drift and there were communications between the groups um, what it did was tried for an earlier intervention in children who uh, had less DHVD. Um, and when you look at the outcomes from Elvis, admittedly it was done in a, a later cohort of children. Um, there, even in the control group, those babies that did not receive an intervention until later, their outcomes are substantially better than those seen in the control group of, of drift. So I think they're probably representing different populations um, of a milder degree, perhaps, and certainly the the, the profiles of grade three and grade four intraventricular hemorrhages are different. But in principle, I think what they both represent is uh, much like we saw with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, um, perhaps a change in attitude towards these babies, whereby even after the, this initial hemorrhagic event, there are probably interventions that can improve and quite substantially improve outcome um, in this group of babies that perhaps um, we have been a little bit um, pessimistic about their outcomes in the past. I think the thing that I find interesting between the two papers, if I'm permitted just to go off piece a little bit, was the, the DRIFT trial uh, showed a d distinct difference in cognitive outcome, where the Elvis trial was uh, more neurodevelopmental, less cognitive. Um, Karen, you mentioned sort of breakdown products and um, the effects that they have on white matter. Do you think is it the timing? Do you think it's the, the technique? Do you think it's the contact with those breakdown products and the difference in the type of outcomes that those interventions um, uh, have made? Or is, it, is that something that still needs to be teased out in further more detailed studies? Um, I think what we, one can say, Jonathan, is the, um, so, so in the Alvis trial, the proportion of babies with, with an infarction, so a, a grade four hemorrhage, um, was was much lower than in in the drift um, drift trial, and if you think about it, if you've lost brain tissue in the form of an infarction, so a poor encephalic cyst, that's not function you're going to regain by uh, but by controlling pressure, which is effectively what um, what Alvis does by you know and the control arm and drift by you know tapping the reservoir, um, and. In drift, we, you know, we we actually irrigating up, you know, all the uh, breakdown products and the clots and so on. So I think the the irrigation probably deals with um, getting rid of all the you know the inflammatory components, the free iron and so on. 
uh, and the model that, that, that Alvis uses on the control arm and drift is, is basically control of pressure and, and distortion of the ventricles. But neither of those will actually improve um, fundamentally if, you, if you've lost a lot of brain tissue, so for instance, you know, so, so with an infarction. So I think that's probably where we're seeing the difference between the two trials in terms of motor outcomes, is this difference in grade four hemorrhages at recruitment. I suppose I'm a sort of field duty bind. You've done two years and 10 years, uh, is 15 years on the cards, 20 years? What's what's next with this cohort? Um, I expect with such good relationships with that cohort, um, you're not going to perhaps stop there and there's more more studies on the horizon perhaps? Yes, well, I think what's, what was interesting is we had a showcase event for the families after the after primary results were known in Bristol. And many of the families actually came with siblings and so on. It was a great event. And we presented the results to the children and, and their parents. Um, and, you know, even the children and families in the control arm uh, were really proud of what they'd contributed to to research, you know, this, this disabling condition. And there was actually um, great buy-in for going forwards and, you know, doing this again. So, of course, it relies on funding and on people actually on the day wanting to, to travel again to Bristol to come and do their, you know, their assessments. But, yes, I think we, it would be really interesting to, to look at these children again in, um, you know, probably around the age of 16, 17, teenage years, when they're now in secondary school um, to see how they're doing. Fantastic. Well, thank you both very much for agreeing to participate in the podcast. It's certainly um, something that um, has sparked interest and I hope will continue to spark interest. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, if you want to engage with the material, um, the Karen and David's paper is uh, open access in this print edition of the journal um, and comments can be left uh, at the, the ADCFN uh, website. Uh, you can interact with the Twitter feed at ADC underscore FN and my own Twitter feed is at Jonathan underscore Davis three. Uh, do either of you have social media methods that people can get in contact if they wish to have a, have a discussion? Yeah, it's, it's Karen.Light. Thank you both very much and we look forward to people engaging with the content at some point when it's published. Thank you, Thank you very much.